Letter 20 I'll give you this. You got a cracking assistant, solicitor. But she won't be with you long, is my wager. Her sort ain't suited to getting sinners out of jail. She's young enough to be your daughter. Shall I tell you what else? Here's what else. Our Father in Holy Heaven never once leaned over and whispered nothing in my ear about no cracking assistant solicitor turning up into the bargain. Only, you and me both knows, Autonomous, the Mighty One can be devilish crafty when he's got a mind. Indeed, the Supreme Creationist has got all his little children and all the little beasties running along in tinier and tinier circles without knowing fuck all about how they got here. I mean to say, who would have guessed it? There I am, waiting the whole year round for just one solicitor to turn up, when lo, two of you shuffle along at once, like buses in a row. And not only that, dear Autonomous, she is a treat for sore eyes. I'll go even further. She's like a Friday night out in front of the telly. Which makes me think, do you like your ancient name I give you? It comes from the telly. Not so long ago, I got my telly taken off me. Taught me a lesson not to break the rules. I've been holier than thou ever since. So they give it me back. They ain't catched me doing nothing sinful since. But that ain't the point. The point is, these days, on my telly, it's all about meet the Romans and... Of all the blokes in skirts in Roman times, do you know what? The most famous of them was a bloke called Julius. What a prick he turned out to be. Mark my wording, Autonomous Primus. Once a prick, always a prick. My own new ancient name is Marlena Maxima. Do you like it? She is a looker, just like me. Soon as she glances sideways, blokes keel over because her lashes is as sharp as daggers. And what shall we call your new assistant? I know, Isintantia Instantaneous, because she's come out of fucking nowhere. Great looker, though. No two ways about it. Pretty turned-up nose. Fine teeth. Comely eyes. That is, if you don't mind a lowly sinner saying so. Do you know what else, Autonomous? I shall tell you, Isintantia Instantaneous looks just like you, foreign like you too, talks like you, dresses dark like solicitors do, which is what you do. She's clever like you, and she does her note doodling like you, busy and primly. Do you know what else else? If I had to guess, taking it all together, mulling it over for not very long, 
Your doodling busy Izzy is more like you than you care to say. You might go, meet my assistant solicitor, Izzy. Ain't she cracking? Only don't mind her, she's only doodling. I might go, ooh, autonomous. You've been having relations and look what's happened. She's fucking gorgeous. But no, not once did I say this out loud. Did you notice? To be fair, I don't suppose even a solicitor can see what ain't happened. Not unless that solicitor looks hard enough. It's in the Marlena Maxima smiles. It's in her eyes with long lashes. And all the while, my Marlena is saying to herself, So, Miss Instantaneous. If I don't say nothing, it's because I know you will barge between us with your shoulders. My assistant ain't none of your fucking busy isiness. Am I right? So, all along, I ain't said not one word. Only, I am thinking it, quiet as a fly on the wall. I am thinking, that girl is family. She has springed long ago from the naughty deeds of my new solicitor, and no mistaken. I could say other not-so-delicate stuff about you, which is hilarious. When you speak, you sound like a dentalist. I don't suppose neither you nor your lovely new assistant never needed no dentaling. Because when you and her open your mouth, all there is is nice, neat rows of teeth. Marley never needed none of that shit neither. Her teeth are gleaming too. But Jenny whatever did, after she fell on her face when she weren't nothing but a fucking whippet. What happened was, Jenny tripped and mashed her mouth up. Two front teeth, gone. Blood on the pavement. Right behind her, giving chase, blokes in black. What else? Only these ones never bothered with their tasers. They was chuckling and tutting and what have you. On the way back to the social, they told each other jokes about how the tooth fairy came out the sky, took one look at Jenny's fucked up mouth and flew away again. Didn't bother leaving her no pound coins behind. They tittered as we went down the road. Fuck them. It was only teeth anyway. Jenny lost loads of teeth learning the ways of the world. She liked pulling them out for the sucking sounds and the blood. No one never said nothing to her about the pound coin bounty of the tooth fairy. Otherwise, Jenny might have driven a few hard bargains. But I digest. What I'm trying to say, Autonomous, is this. There's this one memory Jenny's got. It's a memory of the only voice she ever trusted. Her memory creeped out of the blue beyond while you and me was nattering about my case, and Isantia Instantaneous was doodling it down in her notepad. Cause it come to pass, after her near brush with the tooth fairy, that Jenny's foster carers in them days gone by dragged the lame waif kicking and screaming to a fucking dentalist. Only this dental bloke weren't hardly no bigger than Jenny was. A marvel with his voice, though. Jenny hears it straight away. For such a mini-sized bloke, his voice was deep down, like it come out of the back of caves. Then he climbs onto a box so he can cram himself into her mouth with all his fucking hammers and chisels out. There was ointments after that. 
and each time she went to the dentalist, Jenny was keen as mustard, because it was official ointments so she could bunk off school and not get in trouble for it. She got all drugged up for the occasions. By the end of those happier times, Jenny grew to love the trusty bass tones her dentalist made while he drilled and chipped away in her gaping mouth. What is uncanny is, when you open your mouth, autonomous primus, you too make those very same noises. I could listen to you gravel all day long. It goes straight to the tummy. And did you not notice how so many other sinners doing legal visits was eyeballing you when you said stuff? Those malfactors wasn't seeing your clever manners as you sat wiggling your foreign tongue. No. Some people, with no fucking manners of their own, was listening. And what they was overhearing was altogether most sumptuous. Then you have to go and make your cruel threat. If I got nothing more to say apart from total shite, there ain't no reason for you nor your assistant to come back and visit never again. I will turn a blind cheek and forgive. It's just that being a smooth talker don't stop you talking crap, my friend. Hark this. The prophecy of our Lord is once and forever. Soon you will know how much you erred in the crap you talked. Ask the pretty face, because your assistant has seen the gospel according to Marley. She knows the truth, and soon, my sumptuous autonomous, you will do your second coming, which is the bit I looks forward to the most. But before we get to the horny topic of what your pretty face knows that you ain't got no clues about, let me bang it home for you one last time, clear as soap suds, in fine lettering. Scarly's ex-bloke might need a good spanking, cause he's a weed in the gardens that ain't worth crouching over and pissing on. Be that as it may, he who is called Julius Cuntimus of this parish ain't nothing to do with the evil what happened to my sister. Amen and out. Have you got that loudest and clearest? You probably don't. Your sort need it in writing. So I said to myself, I know. Before his second coming, I'll do this next letter for my new solicitor and this pretty face. In this letter, I will send thank you hugs for coming to hear me speak total bollocks. Not that I would send hugs where we touch, even in lettering. That would be unprofessional, what with everyone looking on. That's why I only give hugs to my new assistant solicitor. And do say sorry from me if Izzy was bothered getting hugs from a murderess. It was meant well. Only, there's times when a suffering sinner might get overcome with motions. God rest her poor soul. And in such times, no one, not even you, Autonomous, can help themselves. When they drugged me away from visits, I could have cried real tears. Alas, I never did find out how to cry. Did you spot Frank the Furniture? He's the one at the desk sloped over a beef sandwich. He's the one has his spy network nosing on us all the while. 
and he's the one what rushes over when my poor soul is overcome with motions and I needs to be carted off to my cell. Double escort, hands behind my back. There weren't no need for that. Only, I don't reckon the blubberbus, known as part of the Furnitron, nor none of his daft surlies, even searched you, nor your lovely assistant, when you dearly departed our prison gates. Am I right, Franco man? What I will say is this. There is a gem hiding inside of you, Otto. You won't know nothing about it. Your sort never do. Your sort is too grave to know what's glinting under your very nose. You will be getting on in the tooth, I suppose. But never mind. There is something in you that will scrub up nicely if you look carefully. Check your pockets. Or better still, why don't you get your cracking assistant to turn out her pockets while you're at it? Hmm. We'd spoken about the fossil embedded in the two sections of the stone used to kill Charlotte. I told you it was likely to be something called an ammonite. I didn't think you'd research it on top of reading all of Molly's letters. But you did, very thoroughly. Now we know that the word ammonite is derived from the name of an Egyptian god, a god with spiraled horns. And the fossils of ammonites look like the horns of this god called Amun. It was the day before we were due to drive to the prison, our first full day together. I was listening, but I wasn't able to think about what you were saying. I had paid handsomely for us both to have a ride in the London Eye. As we ascended over the city in a glass pod, my fear of heights became unambiguous. This is new as well. Before the attack on me, I hadn't been aware of any phobias. My new fear caused me to collapse onto the central bench of the pod, as far away from the windows as I could get. You, on the other hand, were untroubled by the expansive views. Others were taking photographs. One person was actually laughing, I recall. As we neared the top of the pod's arc, I inquired, as neutrally as I could, how a horned Egyptian god related in any way to Marley's appeals case. You came to sit by me. You seemed concerned. I continued to grip the metal sides of the bench. Are you all right? I'm fine. You look pale. It's nothing. Your breathing is shallow. I'm comfortable. As long as I remained in a seated position with only the horizon visible, I was indeed more comfortable than I would have been standing anywhere else in the pod. You went back to the window. Over your shoulder you asked if I wouldn't like to come and gaze at the view. Just thinking about getting to my feet made my stomach lurch. I considered reproaching you for being so callous when it occurred to me that you were teasing. 
Once we were back on solid ground, you returned to your mystifying lecture on the horned Egyptian god, Ammon. I learned that a pharaoh called Agneton had decreed Ammon was to be the god of all gods, and should henceforth be known as Amen-Ra. This was the beginning of a monotheistic worship of the sun, you told me. In a burst of Wikipedic wisdom, you added that the Egyptians may have been attracted to Amen as the greatest god of all, because in their language the word Amen meant hidden one. I fail to grasp your meaning, I said. You're being stubborn. I consider my intransigence to be a saving grace. It's because Marley keeps saying Amen. Marley says many odd things, I said. It's to be expected. Given my frail condition, following our recent airborne experience, you were prepared to be patient. You conceded that the fossil in the stone, whether or not it was an ammonite, was unlikely to yield anything in itself. But you had become interested in the term Amen, you explained, slowly so I could follow this, because Marley kept using it at specific junctures in her letters. The way in which Marley kept using the term was worth examining more closely, you said, with the emphasis of a schoolteacher laboring a clue for the less able students in her class. I shook my head, refusing to budge from my designation as class dullard. This is when you announced that you believed Marley's letters were coded. Well, once again I was impressed at how insightful you are. Marley's letters had been stacked on my desk for months. Although I hadn't paid much attention to them to begin with, my own re-reading of them had also led me to suspect that my client was attempting to convey an elaborately coded message. Now, as we paced up and down the embankment, you were raising the possibility that Marley had known all along that Amen means hidden one. How could she have known that? I asked. Because Charlotte told her. I nodded. This didn't seem far-fetched. And now that we need to know more about Julius Haft, you went on, we would do well to assume that he is the hidden one. Haft? Exactly. Why hidden? Because Marley uses the word Amen mainly when it's in connection with anything she has to say about Julius Haft. Really? Yes. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. As I made a mental note to check this, I quipped that for someone who was so hidden, Julius Haft seemed especially prominent. Your spark, though, was not about to be dampened by the sodden wit of an appeals lawyer, a lawyer looking for evidence that he might be able to do something with. At the same time, I had no wish to discourage you. I loved your animation, it was an emotional relief to see you so excited. That Marley's case had absorbed you completely, despite the nature of our relationship, was all I could cling to. It blinded me to almost everything you were saying. The next day you would terminate your engagement with your London employers as an intern. For the time being, you still had access to their offices, and you'd made use of this. Had I known you would let yourself in to search their commercial databases, I would have had something to say about it. 
Afterwards, as we ambled along the river towards nowhere in particular, you told me what you'd learned about Malskat technologies. I was already aware that the company Haft founded manufactured specialist parts for the arms industry. You told me they were also concerned with the science of long-term space exploration. I knew that Haft was a physicist and that he'd patented certain materials used in the manufacturing process for his company's products. Then you asked if I knew what Malskat meant. I admitted that this fact had, so far, eluded me. You said that Malskat was the name of an artist, Lothar Malskat. I listened only as a father could while you told the story of the forged frescoes at a church in Lübeck, Germany. The church was called St. Mary's. It had been built in the 13th century. In 1942, it was bombed by the RAF. The bombing stripped away centuries of whitewash, revealing a number of badly damaged Gothic frescoes. After the war, the artist Lothar Malskat was hired to restore the frescoes. But he didn't restore them, you said. What did he do? He painted new ones over the originals. Is that allowed? They were a great success with the public. People thought they were authentic? Exactly. Then Malskat instructed his lawyers to initiate a prosecution against himself for faking the frescoes. Really? Why? Out of spite. Out of spite. He wanted to get his employer, Dietrich Fay, into trouble. Fay was the one who hired him in the first place, and he was getting all the praise for the restoration work. Malskat was being ignored, you said. Having a trial over it was the only way he could think of to get the recognition he craved. We laughed. Yes, it was a fascinating story. Again, I couldn't see how it connected with Marley's case. I doubted that it did. It didn't seem to matter, though. At that point, I doubted that Marley had a case. To listen to you speak unselfconsciously, without any reference to my failures as a father, was all I cared about. As if answering my thoughts, you told me that Malskat's trial took place in a dance hall. There wasn't enough room in the courthouse to accommodate everyone. The charge against him was that on the instruction of Dietrich Fay, and for his own gain, Lothar Malskat had painted forgeries of frescoes over the damaged originals. The charge against Fay was that he had known all along about the forgeries and had taken payments from the state. Part of the evidence against them was that Malskat had copied into the forged frescoes the faces of people known to him. He'd painted the faces of his own father and his sister. The Austrian actress Hansi Knotek seemed to be recognizable. Marlene Dietrich was thought to be among the faces. The monk Rasputin was there. All of them were depicted as iconic religious figures. Malskat had also painted turkeys into some of the scenes, you told me excitedly. That's what had clinched it. An expert told the court that in medieval times, there weren't any turkeys in Europe. After Malskat and Fay were convicted and sent to prison, the fake frescoes of St. Mary's were whitewashed. By the time you finished your story of the name behind Malskat Technologies, we were sitting in a Chinese restaurant, sharing a bowl of prawn crackers. 
I dared to ask what the point of it was. You wiped your mouth and looked at me as if I was the child in this conversation. The notebook, of course, you said. What about it? The word Marley in it. Yes, heavily underlined. And surrounded by question marks, I said, finishing your sentence. The exact same thing happens towards the end of the notebook, you persisted. Only this time, the underlined word surrounded by question marks is Malskat. I took out my copy of the notebook and turned to the page you were referring to. When I'd last looked, I thought that the second underlined word might have been Market or Masket. It may well have been Malskat. But the writing had been overscored too many times to be sure. It was shrouded in question marks. Whatever was written there would always be open to interpretation. You were working yourself up to the speculation that there was something curious, if not sinister, about Malskat technologies. I anticipated this and tried to take it seriously. I pointed out that even if we could assume that Charlotte had made a worrying discovery of some kind, what remained of the word Malskat in her notebook hardly seemed capable of advancing a beleaguered case. I thought that was the end of it. The following morning I hired a car. I picked you up early and we drove to the prison together. When we got to the reception I produced my driving license. I'd told you to bring your passport with you. We were searched before being allowed into the visits hall. The hall had rows of fixed metal tables and blue plastic seats bolted to the floor. There were other lawyers in the queue. By the Scottish cadences of the sizable officer designating tables for lawyers to sit at, I guessed that we were in the presence of Frank Furness. Because of his accent, I couldn't understand what table number he was saying. I asked him to repeat himself, but the way he spoke posed challenges. His sharp tone suggested that he departed from the ordinary manner of civil address in favor of a more personal style. He glared at me and pointed in the direction of the table he wanted us to use. I had become inured to the routine of being dealt with dismissively, not only by prison officers, but police officers, prosecutors, judges, the government, and the media. Sometimes I would say to myself, criminal justice isn't a battleground. It's a siege. I explained to you, a little bit gloomily, that the national trend was to regard defense solicitors as an obstacle to justice. It was how I felt. Luckily, you were in your own world. I was annoyed with myself because I'd neglected to arrange for permission to bring my laptop into the prison. It meant I couldn't refer to the series of questions we'd devised for Marley the night before. I should have guessed that you would have your own handwritten notes of our questions. You tore these from your notebook and handed the sheet to me. We were speaking quietly under the watchful eye of prison staff when an extremely attractive woman strode up to our table and sat opposite. It seemed to me at a glance that this woman had the kind of beauty aspired to by the whole history of beauty. By what you said to me later, you won't be surprised at my reaction. Her proportions were perfect, her weight, her bone structure, her skin tone, 
She had a long, thin neck and high, arched eyebrows. As she sat down, her expression was serious, even petulant. Then she smiled and asked, Who's your fucking friend? I quickly settled into a practiced routine. I mentioned what a pleasure it was to meet her. I introduced you as my new assistant. Marley just nodded. She'd produced a curious pout, though, as if she was thinking. After a moment, she extended her hand towards you and said something like, Let's shake on it. You took Marley's hand. Marley didn't let go straight away. She looked at me first. So, Otto Loser, she said, we meet at last. Who'd have thought you had such a pretty face? It was slightly alarming, but I let it pass when she finally let go of your hand. I began by explaining why we'd come to visit. I asked the first of the dozen or so questions we'd prepared. It was about her sighting of Julius Haft, the week Charlotte was killed. In her twelfth letter, she'd mentioned seeing him for a second time, but she hadn't said anything about whether his arm was bandaged. Molly said, ask his fucking doctor. But only you would know if his arm was bandaged the second time you saw him, I replied. What are you saying? That I broke his arm? I never. Prove it. I will deny it. During the course of our exchanges, you said nothing, which was wise. But Molly kept looking at you. Every so often, she would make what seemed to be a sign. She would either wave at you or produce a smile of encouragement. She don't say much, Molly observed at last. Her role is to assist, I said. She's here to observe and take notes. Do you always talk like that, Otto? Even late at nights? Like what? Like you want to throw yourself under a bus? I wasn't aware that's how I talked, I said. Only, with a voice like that, it's a shame you don't do comedy. You'd be fucking hilarious. I ignored this disturbing digression and proceeded to ask Molly the rest of our questions. Her responses were uniformly underwhelming. If there was anything at all interesting about our conversation, it was the way she spoke. From such a classically beautiful woman, I couldn't help but expect a classically beautiful sound. This was not the case. Marley's callow voice was so constantly at odds with her appearance, it jarred. It became clear that she had nothing useful to tell us. Every time I mentioned Julius Haft, her eyes drooped. She pretended to fall asleep. As soon as I finished speaking, she would wake up with a jerk. Each time this happened, she came up with more non-sequiturs. Is that the time? Have we met? Do you like donuts? Because of these antics, I'd given up any serious inclination to pursue any line of questioning. One question, towards the end of your list, was if Marley knew what Amen meant. You probably heard that I asked it with a sigh. According to your notes, her reply was, Well, seeing as you want to know, there's amens and there's omens. Amens means, ah, fucking mens, who fucking needs them. Omens means, oh, fucking mens, they're all the fucking same. 
It was at that point that you interrupted in order to pose a question of your own. When's your birthday? you asked. My heart was in my mouth. We hadn't prepared this. I don't think any of us were prepared for it. Marley grinned. Which ones? By then I'd reached my limit. As far as I was concerned, the nonsense was intensifying. I may have said as much, which made Marley snarl. She told me not to make threats that weren't good for me. I was relieved when Mr. Furness sent one of his officers over to tell us our time was up. All three of us stood at once. Marley stepped too close to you then. When the officer turned his back to go, she actually gave you a hug. Furness shouted something unintelligible. As Marley let go of you, two officers rushed over. They grabbed her arms and marched her out of the visits hall. She was howling and cursing. We left quickly. We said nothing. We were startled. As we made our way through the car park, I felt the need to apologize. I couldn't help saying how sorry I was. Not for the first time, Izzy. Your insights, when they came, were as engaging as they were perplexing. I think you're attracted to her. What do you mean? You think she's attractive. There's a difference between thinking a person is attractive and being attracted to them, if you say so. I may be in the first set, but I am definitely not in the second. I know what I saw. What did you see? I saw the way you looked at her. Yes, but you can't possibly know what I saw. I have a pretty good idea. We drove in silence. I had no clue what to say anymore. As we approached London, you complained that I hadn't bothered asking why Haft had named his company after Lothar Malskat. Yes, that was remiss of me. It doesn't matter, you said. No, again, I'm sorry. I should have asked. She probably doesn't know, you said. My own conclusion was that Marley's case had finally come to an end. I could only regard her now as a disturbed woman who had murdered her twin. Through the traffic in London, we hardly spoke about the case anymore. Anything we did say got lost in the reverberations of the drive. I recognized I was in a quandary. With no appeals case left, my relationship with you seemed to have no meaningful basis left. I was too preoccupied with the clamor of this notion to think of anything else. Had I listened more carefully to you, I might have been able to prevent what happened next. Mm -hmm.